Well, hey, listen, today is Senior Recognition Sunday. You had a handout in your bulletin, and in just a few minutes, we're going to recognize three graduating seniors come here and attend our church. But I got to thinking about it this week, and high school graduation is really one of life's first great achievements. The graduation ceremony represents 13 years of hard work consistently applied in the same direction with a goal in mind. I mean, how many of y'all have pursued a 13-year goal other than graduating high school? No. We set New Year's resolutions. We last six weeks. 13 years is otherworldly, man. High school graduates have really done a great job. And so this Friday, you know, Haven, Faith, Jacob, y'all will walk across a stage and everybody will cheer you on, and you will have finished the task. You'll finish your race. You'll run across the finish line. It'll be awesome. It's so awesome, we have this ritual that goes along with it. And there's a certain outfit you get to wear. The cap and the gown, the stole, and the special cords indicating your extracurriculars and honor societies. There's special music, the pomp and circumstance. Bum. Bum, bum, bum. My school class was bigger than y'all's, and they just did that on repeat. It seemed like for hours. It's crazy, certain music. And then there's the actual act of receiving your diploma. They call your name. You walk across the stage. You shake hands with the administrator, and then you walk out. Uh, doesn't take very long to do. Man, so much happens in that brisk walk across the stage. You think about it. In those few short steps... You transition from high school student to high school graduate. From a child under the direct authority of your parents to now on your own in the world, left to figure it out. And I think the biggest one, the sense that you're no longer a child, but now you're an adult. It's a huge transition. One that I remember making, and I'm sure you guys are going to make with such grace and dignity. It's going to be awesome to watch. This morning, I want to talk to you all about a different transition. Uh, a transition not brought about by the completion of long-term goals and passing all your tests and making good grades. But the transition that's marked by the reception of God's free gift of grace. Transition from a person separated from God by sins to a person who now belongs wholeheartedly to the people of God. This transition isn't marked with fancy clothes. There's no theme song to receiving grace. And as best as I know, they didn't teach me in seminary, I don't think there's a certificate that comes along and says, hey, congratulations, you now got grace. It's nothing like that. But it still transforms everything about a person's existence. This morning I'll ask you again, have you experienced God's grace like that? Are you washed in the blood? Do you know God's grace? Grace that's greater than all your sins. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to show you that God's people are called to be grace people. We're called to live lives that are defined and enabled by the grace of God. So if you will, open up your copy of God's perfect and precious word. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 11 and we're going to work our way quickly through verse 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'll give you a second to get there. If you need to pull out your phone and open it up to the book of Titus in your Bible app, you can do that too. Titus 2, verse 11. 
Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Amen. Hey, over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through this book of Titus, and some of y'all have been here for it, and some of you hadn't, and I want to help you know where this passage fits in Paul's argument. Uh, Titus was Paul's young assistant who he'd left behind on the Mediterranean island of Crete, not for a wonderful vacation uh, in the tropics or whatever the Mediterranean is, but to establish churches. And if Titus was going to establish the kind of churches Paul was after, he needed to know some things. He needed to know what kind of people were qualified to be appointed as leaders in the church. He needed to know what kind of obstacles and threats God's people were going to face from false teachers outside and even infiltrating the church. And he needed to know what kind of lives God's people were called to live in a broken world. And so over the past two weeks, we've been working our way through Titus chapter 2, really examining in probably more detail than you thought possible what kind of life God is wanting us to live as his people. We talked about older men and younger men. And last week, we saw the lives that older men or older women are called to live and the way they're supposed to help younger women grow in the faith. And today, we're seeing how this whole new way of life is made possible. And I've told you in both previous weeks that there's a direct link between the gospel we receive, the good news about who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us, and the kind of life we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live consistently with the gospel message we've received. And this morning, our passage gives us the great detail. How exactly do we mark the transition from an old way of living, which Paul says is characterized by ungodliness and worldly desires, to take on a new way of living that involves all the virtues and the behaviors we saw last week and that he summarizes as being self-controlled, upright, and godly in the world. And you probably know where this transition begins. I've told you, I'm telling you, and I'm going to tell you again. It all begins with grace. But, like I alluded to before, what is grace? What is that word all about? You know, Paul says, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. Grace is undoubtedly one of these church words that we all are supposed to know, but none of us quite have a firm grasp on, so we just kind of fake our way through and say, hey, it's just grace, baby. That's all it is. But there's more to it than that. We think of grace as a substance. I need grace. We open our hands up to receive grace. We think of grace as a location. I'm in grace, in a state of grace, or I've fallen from grace. We think of it as God's response and reaction to our sin, whereas we fly off the handle at other people, God somehow overlooks our sin and is gracious to us. But when Paul uses this word grace, he's drawing on a bigger meaning than maybe might be apparent to us. See, in the ancient world, grace was used to describe the favor that a king might would show to someone who was less than him. Or it could describe the gift that he would give as an extension of that favor. 
Of course, no peasant deserves anything from the king. The king is the king because God said so. And so whatever he gets, he gets. But sometimes if you humble yourself in the right way, maybe a king would give you something nice or he would show you preferential treatment that you just absolutely didn't deserve. And I think this meaning gets closer to the idea that Paul wants us to understand here in Titus chapter 2. Because as I told you, grace is always relational. I mean, the Bible confirms that all human beings have a relationship with God of one kind or another. And God is gracious to everyone. God told Noah after the flood that though mankind had neglected God's authority and had rebelled against him, God would never punish them with a worldwide flood again. Instead, he would oversee the world and allow springtime and harvest time to continue. He would overlook their rebellion until the final day and would allow them to receive good things from him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Now, our unbelieving friends and family, they may not realize it, but God has been good to them, better than they deserve. He has showed them mercy and grace by delaying his judgment and continuing to extend to them an offer to receive eternal life. So that's one kind of grace. That's the kind of grace God shows to all people. But the grace Paul's talking about is God's special saving grace. And that's a grace that God reserves for his people, the people with whom he's in covenant. I mean, consider this. When God rescued his people Israel out of Egypt, uh, he met with Moses, his prophet, on the top of Mount Sinai. And Moses wanted this wonderful glimpse of God. He said, let me see your face. And God said, nobody can see my face and live, but I'll let you see my back. And so God placed Moses in the rock, covered him up with his hand, and as he walked by, he allowed Moses to see a glimpse of his glory. And as he did so, God announced his name, his special name, his covenant name, a name we used to say Jehovah, but now we say Yahweh. And this is what he said in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of Moses, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, but visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Listen, when Paul starts talking about the grace of God with Titus, he's talking about more than the general kindness that God shows the whole world. He's talking about this special grace that takes us, his people, brings us out of our brokenness and sets us apart to be his chosen people, the people who have a special claim on his loving kindness, on his compassion, on his mercy, and on his grace. If we want to transition from the life of brokenness to the life that, call, that Paul is calling us to live in the book of Titus, we have to experience God's grace. It is what defines his relationship with his people. I like the way one commentator, William Hendrickson, put it. He said, God's grace is his active favor, bestowing his greatest gift on the most undeserving. That is the grace we're talking about. Have you experienced that grace? Paul says the person who does starts to live differently. In fact, he highlights four different facets, four effects that grace produces in a person's life. And you could think about them in terms of one, two, three, four. But I like to think of them 
and we're going to be talking about them in terms of their timing in our lives. That God's grace defines his relationship to his people in the past, in the present, and in the future. I love it. it we are enshrouded as his people in a cloak of grace. And so let's look first at God's grace that defines his relationship to us in the past. That's what he says in verse 11. The grace of God appeared. Past tense. God's grace appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I think this can only be a reference to Jesus Christ who was born in a manger in Bethlehem at the special appointed time that God had planned from eternity past in order to bring salvation to mankind. And you start to think about what that means. That means that before Paul and Titus arrived on the island of Crete, before you and I were born, before our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-grandparents, before any nation that we might live in today was founded, God was acting graciously toward us. 2,000 years ago, before you were even a twinkle in some great ancestor's eye, God had sent his son to bring you salvation. And this salvation is all-encompassing. Think about it. We talk about getting saved all the time. It's the one thing we pray for our kids. It's the thing we pray for our friends and neighbors. We want them to be saved. And Paul says God's grace appeared to do just that, to bring us salvation. And this salvation brings into mind like a beautiful diamond, Chase. You can look at it from every different angle, man. And you can see the kind of grace that God has for you. That he sees each of us in exactly the place we are. He wants to save us from the power of sin in our lives, from the penalty of sin over us. And someday he wants to save us from the presence of sin. Y'all, we need it. We need this salvation. The scriptures tells us that by nature we are rebels against the authority of God. That we're like stupid sheep that wander off the path each choosing to go our own way. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are rightfully the children of God's wrath. He says in Romans 1, it has to be this way, because God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. I mean, what greater gift could God give us than the grace that brings salvation? And Paul says this salvation is a gift. It's made available to all mankind, to people from every kind of ethnic background, every socioeconomic status. It doesn't take into account any kind of worthiness in them. It's made available to those who trace their ancestry back to Abraham and those who can't. Those who think they've got it figured out and those who know they don't. Those who feel right at home among God's people and the church and those who feel completely out of place. God's grace is is available to all mankind in Jesus. No conditions, no prerequisites, no graduation pathway to fulfill, no hoops to jump through. God's grace is available for you. He's already demonstrated, it's already appeared in the past, long time before you were ever born. While Paul says in verse 11 that it appeared, bringing salvation to all men, he waits until verse 14 to explain the means by which this salvation is accomplished. And since we're working temporally, past, present, and future, look with me at verse 14, and let's see again what Paul says. He says that Christ gave himself for us, past tense. He gave himself for us 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. See, from the humble birth of Jesus Christ in the manger in Bethlehem to his sacrificial death on the cross and his exaltation at the Father's right hand, every single act of Jesus' life was an expression of God's grace toward us. None of us deserved God to take on our broken humanity, to live a sinless life, to pay the penalty of our sins, and to make possible for us resurrection life. None of us deserve it. It's all grace. But when Paul starts thinking about this grace, he can't help but get to the cross. Because for him, that's where God's gracious disposition toward us is most clearly seen. It's like the song we sometimes sing, Mike. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Loyal subjects lay themselves down in war for their king. They protect the king at the cost of their own life. It's only grace that the king would lower himself, empty himself, take the form of a servant, live an obedient life, and die a death for his subjects. It makes no sense. And so Paul says in verse 14 that he gave himself for us. This is how Jesus described his mission in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this word ransom in Matthew 20, 28, and the word redeem in Titus 2, 14, are from the same Greek root word. It could be translated as redeem or as ransom. It was used in two ways in ancient Greek. It was used on the one hand to describe the payment, the ransom payment that somebody might make to purchase soldiers who had been taken as prisoners of war. You know the prisoner swaps that still happen today where you exchange for prisoners of war, prisoners of war. It's a prisoner swap. Well, in the ancient world, there was a ransom price that would be set for prisoners of war that must be paid. Or the other way it could be used is to talk about the price that was paid to redeem a slave from his slavery and set him free. According to Paul, God's grace appeared in such a way that Jesus offered himself up on the cross to ransom you from your captivity and prisonership to lawlessness. He redeemed you from your slavery to sin. You don't deserve it. You're dead, completely bound, nothing in you to commend you to him. And yet by his grace, Jesus gave himself to redeem you from your lawlessness. Now at the same time, he set you free for a purpose. He said he gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the goal of Jesus' gift of his own life. He willingly laid down his rights as an act of grace for you so that you, being bound by your sin, would be set free to live a life that is pleasing and perfect to him, a life that brings him praise and glory. Because I don't know how you feel about yourself. Maybe when you hear preachers talk about a person being unlovable and broken, you can identify with that on a deep level. You feel like you are unlovable, and you are irredeemably broken. But what the Bible says, what the gospel tells you, is that you are of infinite value 
and worth to God. That in his mercy, out of an overflow of the compassionate heart that he has for you, he sent his own son to live a sinless life and to die on the cross so that you could experience freedom from sin and a new life with him. I think this is beautifully illustrated by this kind of artwork they practice in Japan. It's called Kintsugi. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of accidentally breaking one of your mom's favorite china plates or you've seen your child break a vase that's priceless family heirloom. You know, being from Alabama, when stuff like that breaks, you either fix it with duct tape or super glue. But in Japan, they have a different method. They take a broken piece of pottery and they put it back together with gold. And so what they do is actually produce something that's more beautiful, isn't it? than a bowl that was previously unbroken. That's the grace of God we're talking about. That before you were ever born, before you had ever done anything good or bad, God saw you, and he knew you, and he decided that you were of enough value for him that he would take you out of your brokenness. He'd set you free, redeeming you and ransoming you from your lawlessness, and he would purify you so that you'd be his special prized possession, set free to live for him and the world. Have you experienced that transforming grace today? If not, it's not just grace that's available in the past, but it is a grace that is available for you in the present. Paul says in verse 12 that having sent his son to bring salvation, this grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age. Listen, God's work in you isn't finished when you get right with him at the cross. He's got more in store for you than simply that. He wants to instruct you. Maybe your Bible says teach you. Maybe I think the ESV says train you in a new way of living. The word Paul uses is the same word that was used to describe the ancient Greek practice of education. It's holistic. They call it paideia. But it's a holistic sort of education that brings a child up, not just intellectually, but ethically and socially, so that they could be the type of person who would have a good understanding of language and social skills and right behavior and therefore contribute to a society. The deal with us is, that you and I are perfectly designed to produce one very particular kind of result in our lives. By nature, we are sinners, and so we destroy the good things around us. And God wants us to stop that. I like actually that way the NIV says it. Instead of saying instruct, train, or teach, it says God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, our worldly desires. See, the grace of God doesn't just clean us up. It sets us on a different path. It teaches us that our ungodliness, which is a disordered relationship with God, one that's at a joint with Him, one that doesn't take into account who He is or the authority He has over us, takes into account the worldly desires, which are unsurprisingly desires that define life in the world, the things that the Apostle John describes in 1 John 2 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. 
you know, the kind of things that define most people's existence. That if you take a good look at their life, it, you can tell by the way they spend their time, by the way they spend their money, that they are totally motivated by pursuing pleasure or things or experiences. God's grace wants to teach us to say no to that kind of existence, to say no to ungodliness, and to say no to worldly desires. And in its place, we're to live differently, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, or the ESV, I like the way it puts it, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This is the goal for us. This is what God's grace is working in me and you in the present. And if you think about those three words that Paul uses, we say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, and we start living differently. He takes into view three different spheres of responsibility. He says we're to live sensibly. We've talked about sensible the past two weeks. It's the common denominator in a Christian's life. I told you it means to be prudent, to know in the moment the right course of action, and to take it. To not be bound by compulsion, to feel like we don't have any other option, that we got to do what we feel, and we got to do it now. Another way to translate it is to be self-controlled. To have yourself under control of God. To do what pleases Him in each moment. That sphere is ourself. We're to live sensibly. But it moves beyond ourself to the way we interact with the people around us. He says we're to live righteously. We're to live upright. I think Philip Towner, a commentator, says that that means that when a person takes a look at your life, there is an observable rightness to the way you live. That means our relationships are to be exercised and carried out in a way that's appropriate. That we're handling our families and the people we work with with hum humility and with love. That we're responding appropriately to all those people. That nobody can bring a charge against us that sticks because we're living right when it comes to the people around us. Then it moves out beyond that to the most important relationship of them all, our relationship to God. That we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, doing what pleases Him, responding appropriately to who He is and the authority He has over us, living obediently and reverently before Him as our King. And I read this, and I've tried that before. I've tried really hard to live a good life. I've tried hard to say no to my sin. Say yes to treating people around me with respect. I've tried to keep God's commandments. But I keep coming up short. Anybody with me? That's where the grace of God comes in. God's grace is there not just to call us to something, but to enable us to do it. His Holy Spirit living within you enables you to say yes to a godly life lived under complete control by His Spirit, living appropriately with the people around you. William Hendrickson says what Paul means here is that nobody sleeps their way into heaven. That God's grace doesn't meet us at the cross and say, here's your permission slip, do what you will. But it takes us by the hand and it transforms us into a different kind of life. Have you experienced that kind of grace? Grace that transforms the way you live. 
It's not just grace in the past and grace in the present, though. It's grace for the future. So when God teaches us to say no to our ungodliness and to say yes to his way of living, he begins this process of preparation that day by day, you and I, just normal broken people, are going to get beautified, sanctified, and increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. Paul thinks about him in verse 13. And he says, we're to look forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Verse 11, he says, the grace of God appeared in the past tense. That's when Jesus left heaven, was born in a manger, lived his sinless life. Paul says there's another appearing of Jesus that we're to look forward to. It's the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That Jesus Christ is coming again. That is an amazing and terrifying thought. I mean, when Jesus talked about this future, he told his disciples in Matthew 24 that the Son of Man would appear in the heavens and the tribes of the earth will mourn. Here we are, God's people, looking forward to the the blessed hope and the glory of the appearing of Christ Jesus. And yet when he appears, people are going to cry. They're going to mourn. The Apostle John says in the book of Revelation that they're going to cry out for the mountains to fall on top of them and cover themselves before him. He says Jesus will return on a white horse with armies of angels around him. And there will be a sword coming out of his mouth with which he'll slay his enemies. There will be so many enemies to slay that the streets will run thick with blood so deep that the hem of his robe is stained. Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he'll judge his enemies. There won't be much grace for them. Just judgment. But because we are his people and have, even now, turned our lives around, repenting of our sin and committing ourselves to Jesus, there is grace for us at his appearing. That's why Paul says it's a blessed hope, that it's something we are longing for and looking forward to, that when he returns, we will see him face to face. Because we're hidden in him, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, when he appears a second time, in verse 28, he'll do so not to bear our sins, because he's already done that, but he's coming back to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We don't have to fear his judgment. He suffered judgment for us and paid the penalty of our sins as in even now preparing us for the day when he will remove us from the presence of sin. Because of that, we can look forward to his return with joy. I love the way the Apostle John puts it in 1 John chapter 3. He says, even now we are children of God, yet it has not appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This morning, are you prepared for Christ's return? Have you experienced the grace of God that assures you over and over and over? What love can imagine no wrong we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they're many. His mercy is more. Do you know that? If not... All you do have to look forward to is the judgment of God. But Paul knew 
that the people on the island of Crete and that people gathered at Central Baptist Church in Luling, Texas on May 16th needed to be reminded of the grace of God that goes before them and is with them and will precede them in every moment that they'll ever live. There's no place you can go that puts you outside the grace of God for you, church. He loves you. He is for you. His grace was active before you were born. It is present with you even now, and it will be with you until the day Christ returns to finish the work He has begun in you. Church, we need to return to this grace, the grace that saved us from our sin, and allow it to continue its work in us as it conforms us into the image of Jesus. The transformation we need can't be accomplished in our own strength. We can't try harder or do better or be different. We have to be transformed. And that way the grace of God is different than graduation. Graduation is the well done. It is the appropriate ending to 13 years of hard work. But grace is a free gift. Receive his grace each day. That probably means you need to start your day with a prayer. I put a simple one together, but I'm sure you could come up with one that makes sense for you. Lord, you've been gracious to me, forgiving me of my sins and blessing me when I don't deserve it. Help me today to depend completely on you for all that I'll face. It means actively extending grace to others, to treating people better than they deserved. Because those who've received the grace of God knows what it means to have God overlook offenses and to bury hatchets and to get rid of separations. And so we wouldn't live in bitterness or unforgiveness towards our spouses or families or coworkers. We'd be quick to extend grace to others as God works in us the same kind of spirit that was in Jesus. And of course, it changed the way we talk. Paul says in Colossians 4 that our speech should always be gracious as though seasoned with salt. This is what God wants for us, to be the kind of people who live lives defined and enabled by grace. And if this morning you know that you've never experienced the grace of God like that, let me remind you what we've said. We've said that by nature, all human beings are sinners. That we each come into the world with a natural bent to do things for us, to live only for ourselves. And so we act selfishly to the people around us and we ignore the good commands that God places in our lives. But being created by God and of infinite worth and value, we know that that kind of broken existence can't be all there is. And so we do. We try harder to be better or to be different. We place our hopes in political figures, in experiences, in other people who are supposed to make us feel like we're valuable and treasured. And every one of them seems somehow to come up short. Nothing can fix the brokenness. It's like putting duct tape or superglue on a priceless vase. But God saw you in your brokenness before time began, before you were born, 
before you had done anything good or bad. And he wanted to redeem you from your brokenness. And so he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a sinless life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross to redeem you from your lawlessness and to purify you so that you would be his treasured possession. There's nothing you have to do to earn that status. There's nothing you have to do to prove to him that you want that status. Instead, it is a free gift. It's all of grace. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, and this isn't our own doing, but it's a gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast in God's presence. Instead, all God calls us to do is to do what those people on the island of Crete had done, to do what Riley has done, to repent of our sins, to say no to the ungodliness and worldly desires that have defined our lives to this point and to turn in complete trust and confidence to Jesus. That's what the grace of God wants for you. That's what God has sent his son Jesus to do for you. Not something that happened in the past, but something that is available right now in this moment. That's why God says in his word, today is the day of salvation. Now's the acceptable time. And so if you've never experienced the transforming grace of God that doesn't just save a person from the penalty of sin, but sets them free from the power of sin and promises to take them to the place at God's side where they'll be free from the presence of sin, today is the day that you should do that. Maybe you need to pray your own kind of prayer, a prayer that says, God, you know I'm broken. You know I'm a sinner. Save me by your grace and set me free to live for you. I believe God hears that prayer every time. And if I can encourage you in making a commitment like that, please let me know. I want that for you. I want that for you today. Church, will you pray with me as we respond to the Lord?